Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison, and I'll be joining you for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. But first, I want to start with a case, a case decided this week by the United States Supreme Court that when you look at it or you hear the news stories about it, you'd think, what in the world does this have to do with public safety labor issues? And yet, I think it may end up being a very important um, public safety free speech case, albeit, I think, an accidental one from the court's standpoint. I'm uh, talking, of course, about Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Uh, this is the case involving a, a city of Bremerton, Washington, uh, a football coach who, after the end of football games, uh, conducted prayers on the 50-yard line. And uh, the main question that the court had to address was uh, whether or not uh, the school district could properly insists that he follow its rules forbidding uh, public prayer by its em employees uh, while they were on duty. And in the end, the Supreme Court said that uh, enforcing the school district's uh, rules, in Kennedy's case, would have violated his uh, rights of freedom of religion under the First Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, and it occurs to me that as I'm about to launch into this discussion and, and get around to uh, how it involves public safety labor relations, that it might be helpful to give a little bit of background about the Supreme Court and its power uh, and authority. Because quite frequently I hear misstatements about what the court can and cannot do. Uh, the basics, I think we all know. The Supreme Court is a nine-judge panel. Uh, they are nominated by the president. They are confirmed by the Senate. And once they are confirmed, uh, they have lifetime tenure. Uh, many Supreme Court justices remain on the court until they pass away. Uh, some of them, uh, like uh, Justice Breyer, who is leaving the court today, uh, some of them retire uh, and go on to other careers or just simply uh, retire. But many of them stay for decades, and that is certainly true of our longest sitting justice now, who is Clarence Thomas. Uh, the court that we have right now is fundamentally different in at least a couple of ways from any Supreme Court that any of us have seen in our lifetimes and really in the last century. It's fundamentally different in two structural ways. The first is it is a greatly divided court. It is extraordinarily rare to see uh, a unanimous opinion out of this court. Uh, in fact, it's really rare to see even an 8-to-1 decision or a 7-to-2 decision. Uh, this court is now deciding cases uh, that involve any matter of substance on a 6-to-3 basis, uh, with the six justices in the majority all appointed by Republican presidents and the three justices in the minority all appointed by Democratic presidents. Uh, there have been times in our history where the Supreme Court has gone entire terms without having one dissenting vote, where they acted as a body, uh, as opposed to acted as, uh, as people who were expression, expressing their own individual ideology. Uh, but that's not the case now. Uh, now we have this greatly ideologically divided court. Uh, and in terms of public sector labor law, the division in the court right now is great for employers and terrible for employees. Uh, I have tried to track since we've had this division in this court, and it goes back now about 14, 15 years. I've tried to track all Supreme Court decisions that involve labor relations or employment issues 
where on one side you have an employer and on the other side you have a, uh, an, either an employee or a labor union. And the track record is just striking. Uh, the track record is that employers, by my count, others can count otherwise, uh, but by my count, employers have won 82 of the cases that have been decided by this current structure of the Supreme Court over the last 14 years. It was five to four majority for most of that time, and now it's six to three. So employers have won 82. Unions or employees have won three. And one is a split, I would call it a tie, a split decision. Uh, so a record of 82 and three, that's not an accident, right? That's an ideology. And it is an ide ideology that is firmly pro-employer. I go to conferences now, and sometimes we have this discussions at, uh, these discussions at LRIS conferences, where we, and I mean we, people who do what I do, represent labor organizations, uh, get to talking. And we are seriously suggesting now that it is malpractice for a public sector labor lawyer to file a lawsuit in federal court if there's any possibility that it can be filed in state court under a state claim. You just, from the standpoint of a labor organization, you just don't want to have your case potentially end up with those nine guys and gals wearing black robes in Washington, D.C., because you're going to lose. Uh, 82 and 3 tells you you are going to lose. So that is our, our first difference, is we have this uh, hugely split uh, Supreme Court. And it, it shows up in very interesting ways. Uh, you know, some of our greatest and most, some of our most controversial cases in our history uh, have been written by judges whose political affiliations might surprise you. Uh, so, for example, uh, way back when the Supreme Court in the 1940s was deciding the Japanese internment case uh, as to whether or not it was unconstitutional uh, for the government to intern Japanese Americans uh, during World War II. The justice who voted or wrote the opinion upholding uh, that practice as being constitutional was William O. Douglas, perhaps the most liberal member of the Supreme Court ever, and uh, certainly a Democrat. Uh, and then on the other side, when you get to cases like Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the Supreme Court's landmark desegregation case, uh, not only was that written by a Republican justice, it was also a unanimous decision. Do you think either, either of those uh, results would have happened today with our ideological split? Uh, I sincerely doubt it. The second thing that is unusual about this Supreme Court is it does not adhere to precedent, previously decided cases. Uh, with any regularity. It does not hesitate to overturn decisions that have been rendered 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, it is the most activist court in the history of our country. And by activist, I'm not talking about political left, right, or Republican, Democrat, or anything like that. Activist in the sense that it declares more governmental uh, action, whether it's in the form of statutes or uh, whatever it might be, it declares more governmental action uh, unconstitutional, and it also overturns its own decisions more frequently than any other court. Now, you could argue that those two major effects I've talked about, the ideological split on the court, and the activism of the court are related, that the members of the court who are in the majority uh, have an agenda, as do those who are in the minority. Uh, we could spend an entire podcast on all of that, 
But I just want you to know this background that we have a Supreme Court that's a different Supreme Court than the one, for example, that I learned about when I went to law school way back when. Um, it is a very political entity today. Uh, and this is a young Supreme Court, right? Uh, we have several members of the court who are in their 40s and 50s. Uh, they're going to be around for a long time, another 20 or 30 years. Uh, and so this is just going to be a feature of the public safety uh, environment uh, for many, many years going forward. All right, now on to the Bremerton football teacher. Almost. Because I want to tell you about one of those Supreme Court decisions that overturned years of jurisprudence uh, from a number of years ago that now pops up in this Bremerton case. And the case I want to tell you about from the past is Garcetti versus Sabalos. And we'll post both of these decisions in the show notes so you can read them. Um, Garcetti versus Sabalos is a, a basic free speech case. Okay, Garcetti was the district attorney of Los Angeles County at the time. Sabalos was one of his assistants. Sabalos thought that a deputy sheriff, a Los Angeles County deputy sheriff, with whom he was working, was falsifying affidavits uh, and was essentially making uh, unconstitutional arrests on the basis of the false affidavits. Uh, so Sabalos writes a memo through the chain of command saying, we got a problem with this deputy sheriff. The result is he's transferred. He gets what they call in LA County freeway therapy. He gets assigned to some far distant location. Uh, and it is, as far as free speech law is concerned, an adverse employment action that he is transferred. And he's transferred explicitly uh, because of the memorandum that he wrote. Not that the memorandum was false, but that he wrote it. So this is a classic whistleblower case, right? He's reporting the illegal conduct, or potentially illegal conduct, of another public employee and reporting it to the right individuals through his chain of command. And that case goes up to the Supreme Court. This is back when that uh, our current 6-3 majority was only a 5-4 majority. And the court, by a 5-4 margin, said that nothing about the transfer violated the First Amendment. The court said the real issue here is that Sabalos wrote that memorandum as part of his job duties and continued the court because it was part of his job duties, it had no constitutional protection whatsoever, no matter what the subject of the memorandum was. Even though this is whistleblowing, right? No constitutional protection. Therefore, uh, Sabalos could be transferred or fired or anything for engaging in perfectly truthful speech about a matter of public importance. Now, Sabalos, uh, Garcetti versus Sabalos was what uh, more than one court later described as a bombshell opinion. Uh, we had never seen a free speech opinion involving public employment like Garcetti versus Sabalos. It dramatically retrenched from one of the Supreme Court's earlier cases, in fact, its main case on free speech uh, from about 25 years earlier, a case called Pickering versus Board of Education. Uh, but uh, Garcetti versus Sabalos became the law of the land. And we have watched uh, over the ensuing decade, uh, we have watched as firefighters, police officers, and corrections officers have lost case after case after case, free speech claims, uh, to the rule in Garcetti versus Sabalos. Uh, you know, I updated my book on the rights of law enforcement officers oh, about three years ago or something like that. 
And every time I update that book, I, uh, I read all of the opinions pertaining to the various chapters in the book. So when it got time for the free speech chapter, I read for the previous five years, every single uh, public, or in this case, a police officer, deputy sheriff, free speech case decided by the federal courts. And I can tell you from a casual observation, uh, police officers, corrections officers, deputy sheriffs, troopers lost at least 95% of their cases to Garcetti versus Sabalas. If I'd been counting, I suspect they would have lost 99 out of 100. Now, on to, finally, our Bramerton uh, football coach and Garcetti versus Sabalos. How do those two notions fit together? Well, one of Kennedy, the coaches, uh, claims in the case was that by engaging in prayer, he was engaged in speech protected by the First Amendment. Now, of course, there were religious aspects to this case as well, but I'm just going to focus on the free speech aspects because that's what's important for our discussion today. So because he's a public employee, works for the Bremerton School District, uh, Garcetti versus Sabalo supplies. And then the question is, uh, was this speech related to his job? And you would think the answer to that question is, yeah, he was being paid while he would engage in prayers. Uh, he was a football coach. He was leading other football players in the speech, in the prayer. Uh, he was doing so on the employer's premises on the 50-yard line of the football field. You would think, uh, yeah, this is speech pursuant to his job, and that means it's unprotected. But that's not what this court says. Uh, the court uh, starts by saying, look, the, the key question here under Garcetti is, and I'm quoting, did Kennedy offer his prayers in his capacity as a private citizen, or did they amount to government speech attributable to the district? Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, he was wearing his coach's uniform, he was on duty, he was being paid, his students, i.e. the football players, were gathered around him, or at least some number of them were, were. You would think that would be a bit of an easy case. And the court says, nah, actually, it is an easy case, but not the way you think. Quoting, it seems clear to us that Mr. Kennedy has demonstrated that his speech was private speech, not government speech. When Kennedy uttered the three prayers that resulted in his suspension, he was not engaged in speech ordinarily within the scope of his duties as a coach. He did not speak pursuant to government policy. He was not seeking to convey a government-created message. He was not instructing players, uh, discussing strategy, encouraging better on-field performance, or engaged in any other speech the district paid him to produce as a coach. Simply put, Mr. Kennedy's prayers did not owe their existence to his responsibilities as a public employee. Wow, think about that, uh, shorn completely from the religious elements of the case. Think about that in a free speech context. Isn't what the court is saying in this case is that if a public employee engages in speech that is not part of their job duties, it is protected by the First Amendment, assuming, of course, it meets the threshold of being a matter of public importance. That's exactly what the court is saying, I think. And isn't that really, like, a really amazing result? Think of, for example, other things that Coach Kennedy could have said at the 50-yard line. 
and whether or not these would be constitutionally protected. He could have led his players in a chant of stop the steal, or he could have led his players in a chant of lock Trump up. Would either of those have been part of his job? Or in the words of the court, would either of those statements owe their existence to his responsibilities as a public employee? No. Would either of them be about a matter of public importance? Yes. Does that mean that the speech is now potentially protected? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the natural way to interpret this case. Uh, now, of course, I'm very, very suspicious about this because this is a Supreme Court that, as I mentioned before, this is why I went through that long uh, story at the beginning. This is a court that is firmly pro-employer. What is going to happen when this court gets its next police officer speech case and where it has this natural tug to rule in favor of an employer but yet will be facing the language that it created in the Kennedy case, created because it was anxious, I think, politically to approve this sort of prayer on the 50-yard line. It's going to put the court in a very, very bad position, but you know who's going to put in a really bad position? Are the lower courts trying to reconcile Garcetti versus Sabalas with the Kennedy case? I know I talked a little bit too long about this, but I, I just realized well, when I thought about it this morning that uh, I've gone too long without talking about the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's role in our uh, jurisprudence uh, around the country and, and how we're in a different world with respect to the Supreme Court, whether you like it or not. Notice I did not mention the word abortion at all in this podcast. Whether you like where the court is going on the social and economic issues, uh, to, uh, to me that's not the issue I want to focus on. I just want to focus on how different this court is structurally from any other Supreme Court that we've seen and how this is going to continue into the future. Now, on to our cases for the month. Okay, for our first case, let's go to New Jersey. I know you all are tired of me referring to New Jersey cases, but I got to tell you, that's where the action is right now. There's more public safety litigation going on in New Jersey than any other state. And they've got some really interesting cases. And here's one about a disciplinary matrix. You all know what a disciplinary matrix is, right? It's a table uh, usually embedded in an employer's rules, sometimes included in a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, and uh, the matrix lists down one side of the table uh, the offenses, whatever they might be, you know, uh, off-duty driving while intoxicated or insubordination, whatever the offenses are. And then on the right side of the table has a punishment range. Sometimes these matrices get a little bit more sophisticated and they uh, include the types of mitigating factors that can be taken into account in assessing disciplines. But, you know, essentially borrowing from a, an English romantic poem, uh, they are a statement of, uh, how can I discipline thee? Let me count the ways uh, and, and list whatever the punishment ranges are for each of the different types of offenses. Uh, and we see litigation from time to time over the question of whether or not a disciplinary matrix is mandatory for collective bargaining. Uh, this case in New Jersey uh, arises out of the city of Newark. Now, Newark has a couple of police unions. Uh, Lodge 12 of the Fraternal Order of Police represents rank and file, and the Newark Police Superior Officers Association represents supervisors in the department. And when the city implemented a disciplinary matrix, both of those labor organizations filed unfair labor practice complaints with New Jersey's Labor Board, which is called the Public Employment Relations Commission. And the question was, did the city have to negotiate with the unions before it implemented this disciplinary matrix? And uh, PERC, uh, Public Employment Relations Commission, answered that question, uh, yes, it did. And I'm going to quote a 
couple of sentence, sentences, maybe three, uh, from the commission's uh, opinion. Uh, the commission wrote, quote, this commission and courts have held that changes in negotiable terms and conditions of employment must be achieved through the collective negotiations process because unilateral action is destabilizing to the employment relationship and contrary to the principles of our collective bargaining act, thus employers are barred from unilaterally altering mandatory bargaining topics whether established by expired contract or past practice without first bargaining to impasse. Boy, a lot in that, I guess, two sentences. Let's unpack it. Uh, first of all, uh, what the Labor Commission or PERC is talking about here is what I refer to as the continuing duty to bargain. And this is the notion that if something is not controlled by a collective bargaining agreement, but is still mandatory for bargaining, a wage, an hour, or a working condition, the employer can't make a change in past practice without first negotiating with the union. Uh, and that's either whether the topic of the change uh, is mandatory for bargaining, or even if the topic of the change is an employer right, a management right, there may be mandatorily negotiable effects or impacts. And all of that bargaining has to happen before the change is made. Now, note that Perk said, uh, without first bargaining to impasse. What does that mean? Uh, this bargaining that has to happen before the change is made, what does it mean that it has to happen without first bargaining to impasse? What Perk is saying is, uh, that means if you can't reach an agreement in the bargaining process, then that impasse gets broken in the normal way impasses are broken in our state. So in New Jersey, uh, impasses and bargaining are broken by binding arbitration. And that's what would happen in this case. Uh, it would mean if you can't reach an agreement, uh, then, then either the unions could refer the matter to arbitration and the arbitrator's decision would control. Uh, in other states, you may have mediation as a predicate to arbitration. So uh, if you can't reach an agreement, then you go through mediation and then eventually to arbitration. And in yet other states, there are a few states, Florida and California, the most significant of them, uh, where if you go through the mediation process and you go through a non-binding process called either fact-finding or special master process and you still don't have an agreement, then the bargaining can end with the employer unilaterally imposing its last best offer. So when Perk here is talking about without bargaining to impasse, think of impasse meaning whatever it means under the structure of your collective bargaining law. If you're in a state with binding arbitration, that means you have to go to arbitration over these midterm changes and mandatory subjects of bargaining unless you have an agreement. If you're in a meet and confer state, you still, still have some processes that you have to go through, but in the end, the employer is going to be able to unilaterally implement its last best offer. Uh, so back to the New Jersey case. Uh, we know there's been a change in past practice. Well, why is this a negotiable change in past practice? And here's what the commission says. The commission and the courts, quote, have held that procedural safeguards associated with discipline and investigations intimately and directly affect employees and do not significantly interfere with the ability of the public employer to impose discipline. And the types of things, Perk says, that are negotiable here are things like, and this is not just a matrix, it also involves some disciplinary procedures. Uh, what's negotiable here includes the notice given to an employee of complaints that are filed uh, against them. Uh, whether or not investigations for serious complaints will actually involve interviews of all the witnesses. Will there be a right to consult with a union representative or to have the union representative present 
during the course of both criminal and administrative interviews. What about witness officers? Are they going to have the right to representation? Uh, and what about hearings and whether or not the employee is going to get a discovery packet from internal affairs prior to a pre-disciplinary hearing? And finally, what about the issue as to whether there will be confidentiality and privacy for investigative files? All those things, Perk said, these are all mandatorily negotiable pre-disciplinary procedures concerning due process issues. Go ye forth back to the bargaining table and bargain this stuff, Perk says to the city. Fairly standard case here about a midterm change and a unilateral subject of bargaining, but I think it gives us a good illustration of what the law is in this area. Uh, one thing on disciplinary matrices, uh, it just been a yo-yo with respect to these things over time. They didn't used to be a feature of public safety, labor relations. And then in, boy, I want to say that and late 1970s, early 1980s, somewhere in there, uh, you saw employers start to adopt them. And the one that became the most famous in the country was the Houston Police Disciplinary Matrix. Uh, and after Houston's matrix came down, then you started to see a fair amount of them. And there was a lot of litigation over them. Uh, over whether or not there was an obligation to bargain about them, and those cases uniformly came out that there was an obligation to bargain. Then when we got into the aughts, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there, you started to see exactly the opposite thing happen. You started to see employers moving away from disciplinary matrices, uh, and the rationale was they felt that the punishment ranges in these matrices actually uh, tied their hands too much in terms of the range of disciplinary sanctions that could be appropriate for a particular case. Uh, and then in the last decade, particularly the last five years, now we're seeing employers going back to disciplinary matrices, but not because the agencies themselves want it, but rather because in law enforcement, police oversight agencies want disciplinary matrices. So we've actually seen jurisdictions that had a matrix and then did away with a matrix and then has a matrix again. And all of those events, getting a matrix, doing away with one, getting one again, they're all bargaining events, right? Because they all concern a mandatorily negotiable working condition, the most important mandatorily negotiable working condition, that of disciplinary procedures and standards. Next up, I've got a duty of fair representation case for you. We haven't talked about the duty of fair representation for a while, so I thought this would be a really good uh, case to serve as an example. Duty of fair representation is the only duty that a union owes to its members. Uh, the DFR, I'll call it DFR, the duty of fair representation uh, is a duty that is owned by the, uh, owed by the union, not by the officers of the union. The officers of the union can't be sued for breach of duty of fair representation only the union itself. And the union, excuse me, the duty of fair representation is, at its core, a procedural duty. And what do I mean by that? I mean, it, it requires a union to consider grievances and other requests for representation in a procedurally fair manner. Uh, it, it's sort of a due processy kind of notion. Uh, and what we recommend to our clients is whenever you're considering a grievance or some other claim from an employee, uh, set up a procedure. Do it in advance. Uh, put the procedure in your bylaws. Uh, so your procedure may involve a grievance committee uh, that makes recommendations to your board. It could be a grievance committee that makes a final decision as to whether to take a case to arbitration. Uh, your committee uh, should have something that allows the member to make a presentation and to submit uh, documentary evidence to whoever makes the decision on the grievance and put all that in your bylaws and then follow your bylaws, right, uh, every time. Uh, and if you do that, 
you are going to be almost completely insulated from a successful claim of breach of duty of fair representation. Now, you can't uh, always be insulated from someone filing a lawsuit or an unfair labor practice. People can do that. Uh, it doesn't cost very much money. You can handle those things pro se. And most DFR cases are in fact pro se. They are handled without a lawyer. Uh, and wh whoever decides the case, a labor board or a court, is going to ask the question, did the union handle this case in a procedurally fair manner? And was its decision free of bias? And in any way, was that decision uh, within the range of wide, wide discretion that we give labor organizations in making decisions on grievances? Uh, okay, on to the facts of this case. It comes from my home city of Portland, Oregon. I had not even heard about this case until it was published. Uh, and it involves a firefighter by the name of Craig Galt. Uh, he became a, uh, a member of the bargaining unit when he joined the fire department, represented by the Portland Firefighters Association. And in 2019, he became a fire investigator. Fire investigators in Portland have to have specific training, uh, and they are really a, a form of a police officer. They carry firearms. They're certified by the state. Uh, so they're kind of a different sort of beast, but they are within the fire department. Now, shortly before Galt becomes a fire investigator, the association had filed a grievance challenging the way the city uh, selected firefighters for call shifts. So call shifts are additional shifts that are worked, 24-hour shifts that are worked, uh, and uh, they are more or less desired by firefighters, depending on how much firefighters want to make and want to work uh, and the like. Uh, and within a few days of the union, the association filing this grievance, the fire marshal, who's in charge of fire investigators, announced that <clears throat> management had agreed to retract its changes in past practices with respect to call shifts, the changes that had prompted the grievance. And he wrote, Fire investigators will not be allowed to work overtime in emergency operations. In other words, fire investigators can't work uh, almost every type of call shift. So a lot of meetings happen between the city and the association uh, over uh, all of these issues. Uh, and as you can imagine, who can work a call shift and in what order, that's a big deal. Uh, in any fire agency, and particularly in larger ones like Portland's. Uh, and these meetings were held over the course of the fall and winter of 2018. Galt weighed in uh, when he was in training to be an investigator. He wasn't yet an investigator, but he weighed in on this dispute. Galt uh, had been known as a, quote, call shift hawk, end quote. Uh, in that he signed up for as many call shifts as possible. So he emailed the association while these meetings were happening, and he said, I, I disagree with the grievance. Uh, I think the association doesn't have the, a written policy to support its position, that an investigator should not be allowed to work emergency operations call shifts. Uh, the association responded that uh, it did, in fact, have uh, such a policy, but nonetheless uh, said, you know what, we're, we're willing to agree to a six-month trial period where investigators can work call shifts under limited conditions. And the six-month trial shift or trial program happens. Uh, generally regarded as successful, but some investigators believe the procedure didn't meet their needs because uh, the call shift opportunities became available um, really on short notice. And for them, the electronic notices of call shift availability arrived late at night, disrupting their spouse's sleep. Uh, Galt, who by now was an investigator, filed a grievance challenging the denial of a call shift opportunity 
during this trial period. So the association then meets with Galt and other investigators, including talking about expanding the ability of investigators to work short notice call shifts. More discussions follow, but Galt isn't happy. And he eventually files an unfair labor practice charge with Oregon's Employment Relations Board uh, and says uh, that, look, the union uh, breached its duty of fair representation to me and in particular, it turned my request to arbitrate my grievance down. Uh, and uh, that was a breach of its duty of fair representation. The Employment Relations Board tosses Galt's complaint out. Uh, and it does so for uh, several reasons. One technical, and I, I really need to talk to you about the technical one, but I'll get to it last here. Uh, the first thing that the uh, Employment Relations Board says is, look, uh, the association turned handsprings here on this whole issue of call shifts. It met with Galt, it met with other investigators, it met with the city, it had multiple hearings from its grievance committee, it uh, turned uh, the matter over to its lawyer, it involved Galt fully in the process, he was informed of everything that was going on, had repeated uh, opportunities to pr provide evidence and plead his case to the association. The association did its job, said the Employment Relations Board. The duty of fair representation, says the board, is not about whether the union made the right decision whether or not to refer a case to arbitration. Rather, it's about whether it made the decision in the right way. And in particular, the ERB says, the union has the right to balance the competing needs of its members and to pick somebody. So when you think about it, that has to be the case, right? So there's got to be winners and losers on some of these grievances. Think about a seniority grievance. Isn't there a winner and a loser with every seniority grievance? Someone's going to be happy, someone's not going to be. Uh, unions have to be able to make these decisions. So uh, let me uh, refer now to what the Employment Relations Board said about that issue. Quote, Galt's admitted purpose of the grievance was not to enforce or interpret the collective bargaining agreement. Instead, it had the internal union political goals of changing the views of leadership regarding an issue that could pit one group of bargaining members against another. Galt's internal union political goal was to tilt that balance towards himself and a few other highly compensated employees and away from a much larger number of lesser compensated employees. Nothing in this process indicates that the association's decision not to pursue the grievance was arbitrary, discriminatory, or made in bad faith. Unions have the right, says the ERB, to make those sorts of policy calls. Now, the technical issue I promised you that I would uh, return to uh, is that when Galt filed this duty of fair representation claim with the Employment Relations Board, uh, he initially sued both the union and the uh, city and then voluntarily dismissed the city from the case. And what the Employment Relations Board said uh, is, look, you know, you know what that means? That means that Galt is acknowledging that there's no contract breach that would have been the basis for a meritorious grievance. He's in essence saying his grievance had no merit. Quote, thus, there can be no legitimate argument that the association breached its duty to fairly represent Galt by not taking his admittedly non-meritorious grievance to arbitration, that alone is sufficient to dispose of the claim." End quote. Uh, that's a little known feature of these DFR cases, and that is if the employee wants like monetary relief or wants a grievance to go to arbitration, they've got to join the employer as a co-defendant uh, 
or whatever the status is, co-respondent in this case, uh, or else they're going to lose their case out of hand. I want to end this month's podcast with a case that raises an issue that I think we're going to see a lot more of, uh, particularly in law enforcement in the upcoming months and years. And it's the question of uh, what happens when a lower ranking individual commits some sort of misconduct, does something wrong, violates the employer's rules, but does so with the knowledge and approval and maybe even the direction of a supervisor. What are the results going to be? Okay, this is a New Orleans Police Department case. It involves Sergeant Willie Jenkins. Uh, on April 18th, 2018, Jenkins, along with a, a bunch of New Orleans police officers, uh, responded to a call concerning an armed robbery. Uh, while they were in the process of attempting to locate and arrest the suspect, a detective by the name of Chambers uh, spoke to the resident of the house and obtained her verbal consent to enter the residence. So a bunch of officers go in, they find the suspect, they arrested him. Uh, who goes in? Uh, very importantly for this case, uh, Willie Jenkins, Sergeant Jenkins goes in, as does his lieutenant, Lieutenant Octavio uh, Baldassaro. Subsequently, uh, the police department gets a complaint uh, that this was not, in fact, a consent search. Uh, the police department investigates uh, and ends up disciplining the uh, three officers who go into the uh, residence and they discipline them for failing to complete the department's consent to search form. Uh, and this is a form that documents that the resident consented to the search uh, and it's signed by the resident and the supervising officer approving the search. Uh, and uh, it, it's pretty serious discipline in this case for just simply not getting a form. They, there was no dispute as to whether or not it was in fact a consent search. It's just that they didn't use the form. Jenkins got a five-day suspension uh, for this. He appeals to the New Orleans Civil Service Commission. Uh, that's where discipline goes in New Orleans. There's no binding arbitration there. Uh, and the commission reverses the suspension. And the city is not happy. And so it files an appeal with the Louisiana Court of Appeals. Uh, and the court has to end up deciding uh, whether or not to uphold the Civil Service Commission's decision that overturns the discipline. Uh, and the court uh, is really, really concerned about this chain of command issue. Let me quote from the court's opinion. Although Sergeant Jenkins failed to complete a consent to search form, the highest ranking officer on the scene, Lieutenant Baldessaro, testified that such a form was not required based on the exigent circumstances. As an officer ranked below Lieutenant Baldessaro, who had no supervisory duties at the scene, Sergeant Jenkins should not suffer discipline for his supervisor's decision not to require the lead detective to obtain the execution of a consent to search form. Um, and that, I think, is an accurate statement of the present state of the rule as to whether or not uh, a subordinate acting in concert with or pursuant to the instructions of a supervisor can be subject for discipline. There's a big exception to that, right? You can't do something illegal uh, and simply because a supervisor orders you to or permits you to, that doesn't let you off the hook. And there's some other very, very serious offenses where uh, the fact that a supervisor knows of the offense, participates in the offense, uh, the employee is not going to be exonerated for that. So, for example, an employee can't lie um, with the blessing of a supervisor and expect to be insulated from discipline. But 
for routine day-to-day -day, uh, activities in the job, performance of job duties, uh, if the allegation against the employee is, you made a judgment call wrong, and there was a supervisor who was right there who made that same judgment call, you can expect that sort of discipline to be overturned. Now back to uh, the Court of Appeals decision on this. Um, and uh, let me quote from the court's assessment of the Civil Service Commission's uh, logic. Quote, uh, the commission's decision turns on the assessment that Sergeant Jenkins was not acting at a, in a supervisory capacity at the time of the consent search and that Lieutenant Baldessaro was the supervisor on the scene. Baldessaro did not require the consent to search form's completion based on his perception that exigent circumstances existed, which in Baldessaro's view alleviated the form's requirement. On these facts, we cannot say that the commission's conclusion that Sergeant Jenkins should not be disciplined for Baldessaro's supervisory judgment is arbitrary or capricious. So discipline reversed. I think we're going to see more of these cases, right? Uh, this is part of the police reform movement that officers have an obligation to act independently, even independently of supervisors to ensure that uh, their employer's rules are followed. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of tensions in this area in, in the upcoming years. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what legs this Jenkins case has. May not have legs that are uh, too lengthy. Anyway, that's it for the July edition of First Thursday. Uh, we have a seminar coming up in September in Las Vegas. It's our Grievances and Arbitration Seminar. Uh, it, it's a, semi a seminar that I really do enjoy quite a bit. Uh, we go through uh, the ins and outs of a grievance procedure and what's good language and what's bad language in a grievance procedure. And talk about how to pick arbitrators and the like. and and uh, talk about the cost of arbitration, how much time it takes to uh, get an arbitration decision, how you should be picking arbitrators, what do you look for in arbitrators, uh, and the like. And we'll talk about the most common forms of grievances today, like social media use and, and the like. I, I find it to be a very, very fun seminar. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time on what I've talked about earlier in this uh, podcast on the continuing duty to bargain and the wide range of cases uh, to which it applies. So hope we can see you in uh, Las Vegas in September. We're back at the Flamingo Hotel Midstrip this time uh, before uh, apparently Caesars Palace or Caesars is going to sell the Flamingo, but not yet. So we're still at the Flamingo. With that, we hope to see you for the August edition of First Thursday. And this is Will Aitchison signing off.